The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. But from this week on we'll be doing so slightly differently. There'll now be two of us hosting. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. For 2022 we'll be your co-hosts for the edition. This week, is it time to rip up vaccine passports? Plus, is COVID putting a spotlight on understudies? And finally, is being cancelled a badge of honour? First up, in The Spectator's cover story this week, our economics editor, Kate Andrews, writes about her disdain at the idea of vaccine passports and says that it's time to rip them up. She joins us now, along with Professor Julian Savlesco from the University of Oxford. Kate, you write our cover story this week on the topic of vaccine passports and you begin by detailing an inconvenient incident at the airport. Can you start by explaining what exactly happened? Sure. So I was one of the many unlucky people who got COVID-19 in the run up to Christmas and I ticked all the boxes I I thought you were supposed to tick. And indeed, at the time, the guidance was that if you have symptoms, if you test positive on a lateral flow, you obviously go into isolation and then you take a PCR test later to confirm. Now, this has now been changed, but being a a conscientious person, I thought, well, I'll go get my PCR. I know they're trying to track the new variant, Omicron. Seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Anyway, I was well over my isolation period. I was recovered. And uh, just after Christmas, I was preparing to fly home to Connecticut. And just as I was heading to the airport and I went to download my travel vaccine passport, I discovered that the record was not found. Now, this was very strange. I'd used it just a month before to travel. I've downloaded it many times because you need it so frequently these days. I looked at my domestic vaccine passport and there was a notification saying you've had a positive PCR result. And so your vaccine passport is basically suspended. Now, this was really concerning for a while because I thought, well, I'm not flying today then. As it happens, because I was going to a country where I'm a citizen and they will let me in regardless of my vaccine status, I am jab, but I can prove it with the pass as I wanted to, I was able to fly. But had I been going almost anywhere else, it's very possible I could have been grounded. Now, this is in the fine print of the vaccine passport, but it's not obvious at all that MPs have legislated for this or knew what they were voting on, that a passport can just be suspended with a a positive test or a, a push of a button. It also doesn't line up with what the guidance was at the time. I mean, I was perfectly within my legal rights to be traveling at that point. I was out of isolation, but the app had other ideas. I think it's one of probably countless examples out there that people have encountered of how this technology is actually really very powerful. It's more powerful than the ministers who have ushered it in want to admit. It's still in an experimental phase, and I think we still have an opportunity to roll it back, given the fact that vaccine passports just don't seem to have any real effect in the UK on uptake. They're producing a lot of negative results. I think this is the moment that we say, you know what? It was an experiment. Let's scrap it. Well, speaking of the the moment that uh, might have come to scrap or not scrap, uh, let's go to to Julian, because Julian, you appeared on the BBC's Moral Maze last March saying that vaccine passports were necessary at the time because vaccinations were not widely available. 
But if vaccine uptake was uh, was high enough, then vaccine passports wouldn't be necessary. And do you think we're at that point now? Or do you think uh, we still need to impose vaccine passports until enough people have been boosted? Yeah, well, it's a tough one. Um, there are two ethical defences for vaccine passports. You know, one is that, you know, you, you shouldn't be free to go out, you know, into the world and threaten other people either with a gun or with a lethal virus. And so if you've been vaccinated, the argument goes, you're no longer a threat to others, so you, know, you can enjoy freedom. The problem with that argument is that, that actually the, the vaccines have turned out to be pretty poor at reducing transmission. So I don't think on that ground, vaccine passports are justified. But there's, there's a second ground that, that many people aren't familiar with, uh, and that is in an extreme public health emergency, if the health system is on the verge of collapse, um, then there is a second reason to require people to have vaccinations if they go out, and that is to stop them getting ill and putting more pressure on the health system. And despite the high levels of vaccination and, and now with the emergence of, of Omicron, there are arguments that the health system is again on the verge of collapse. And if that were true, that would be a justification for either mandatory vaccination or, or vaccine passports. So I think it really depends on just how tight the situation is with the NHS. Kate, what do you think of that argument, that if a vaccine passport system would have a positive effect if it can remove pressure on the health system and stop, stop it from collapsing? So I, I would disagree that either of those ethical arguments really make the case for vaccine passports. Of course, you can't go around waving a gun and threatening people. But I, I think there are very few people out there who are intentionally waving their virus and threatening people. It is an airborne disease that is an, air, it's an airborne virus that can affect people asymptomatically. And in the UK, at the moment, if you test positive for it, you do have to self-isolate. I mean, you cannot go out there waving it around. But as Julian himself points out, Omicron has, has really changed this dynamic because the vaccines are still doing an excellent job of protecting us against severe illness, but they're not necessarily cutting down transmission. I don't think you can say that by going out there and not showing a vaccine passport, you are threatening people in the way that you might with a weapon. The truth is, even if you're double jabbed, even if you're triple jabbed, you can still transmit this virus. I also think this point about the NHS is, is a crucial one. The idea that we live for the health service is simply wrong. The health service is supposed to be there to protect us not the other way around. Now, I think it's really important that people get vaccinated. There's There are lots of ethical arguments around vaccination and why it's good for you, why it's good for others. But that's very different from a passport or a mandatory system. And, you know, any any benefit you might point to is still going to undermine other fundamental freedoms about the right to our autonomy, about the right to our body, about how it's so much better to persuade people through education than it is to, I mean, the idea of mandatory vaccines, essentially holding people down, getting the jab in their armor, completely cutting them off from all of society if they don't do what the state tells them to do. I, I don't see how any of this really makes this world a better one to live in. I, I want to live in a world where people take up the vaccination, but not because they truly had no other choice, because it, just, it was their I just, choice. Just respond to course, one part. I mean, I'm sympathetic with, with a, lot of, a lot of that, um, and particularly the point that, you know, the health system is there to serve us. We're not there to serve the health system, I think is a very good point. And, and one obvious objection to, to the argument that we need to protect the NHS is that people make 
all sorts of lifestyle choices, whether it's smoking or drinking or overeating or not exercising or engaging in risky sports, that mean they get ill and need healthcare and, and the healthcare system is there to support people's autonomy, as you said. However, this is quite a different situation that we haven't funded a healthcare system to, to support healthcare in this kind of crisis. Now, I think that the government needs to show that there really is an existential crisis to the NHS, first of all, for this to be an exceptional circumstance where I completely agree liberty should be the default, not the exception. So I think, first of all, the onus is on the government to really show that these measures are necessary. And secondly, I think that in part, it's diverting attention from a bigger structural problem. And that is the NHS is extremely underfunded and, and not delivering the best healthcare in the world. Part of the reason why Sweden is enjoying greater freedoms, there are many reasons, partly, you know, it has a better functioning healthcare system relevant, uh, relative to its population. So I think part of this is diverting attention from, from inherent problems within the NHS. Um, now, those can't be solved overnight, but I do agree that there seems to be a shift in responsibility away from government and onto individuals for many problems which are not of their own making. Okay, I thought one of the most interesting bits of your piece was when you talk about Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, and, and you say that he has long argued in private that vaccination campaigns work best when jabs are presented as an attractive option. And I mean, do you think he's right to worry that vaccine passports could actually undermine the entire sort of vaccination program for all sorts of diseases. I think it's a very legitimate worry. And it's interesting when when Witte talks about vaccinations, because I, I think especially in private, he is far more concerned about what turning them into a political agenda can do to the wider vaccination program, especially for children's inoculations. The UK has incredible take up for the main vaccines you would get for children. But if you start turning to vaccine passports, if you make this, Laura, I think the brilliant phrase you came up with last year is an issue of the jab versus the jab knots. All of a sudden, you're in totally different territory where you're not talking about the pragmatism behind vaccines, but what the state will and will not allow you to do, whether or not you've had it. That can turn a lot of very sensible people who would like to have their vaccine off the whole thing. And and another thing I point out is that, you know, again, I would encourage everybody to get their booster, but if you're going to keep moving the dial and changing what it means to be fully vaccinated. And if your population isn't keeping up with a relatively rigid schedule of what it means to be fully vaccinated, that can also really turn people off who have been trying to do the right thing, but just feel like the government may at some point be asking too much or on a timetable that they struggle to keep up with. I mean, I would take some issue with what Julian said about the underfunding of the health service, even if you go, go back to 2019 before any of the emergency spending, healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP in the UK was over 10%, very much in line with European countries. Perhaps this is for a different podcast. I, I think I think you can certainly point out that the NHS has many flaws. I'm not convinced funding would be the only solution. But perhaps an area we can agree on is that if the healthcare service is going to be collapsing every winter with COVID, as it was often collapsing winters without it, something's got to give. I'm just not at all convinced that what has to give is our right to go where we want and do what we please without showing our health status. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've argued, well, actually back in, in 2020, that we should explore incentives before we explore coercion. Uh, and, for example, my, my daughter's in, in, in Australia at university, and she was paid, you know, $800 just to get the economy going. She could have been paid $800 
to get a vaccination. And, you know, I've argued that incentives are preferable to, to disincentives and, and they simply haven't been tried in the UK. And, and they, there is mixed evidence about their effectiveness, but, you know, some estimates put Ohio's vax lotto as saving something like 20 million US dollars in healthcare costs. So, you know, I think we could have, with the, with the billions spent in the pandemic, explored various ways of incentivising vaccination before we moved to, to... And let's face it, People are confused about what mandatory vaccination means. They think it means holding somebody down and putting a needle in their arm. Mandatory vaccination just means putting a cost on not being vaccinated. So in some countries like Italy, that's a fine. In, in Australia, it's no childcare payments. In the US, your child can't go to school. And, and vaccine passports are a form of mandatory vaccination. They withdraw certain freedoms you know, in order to get you to be vaccinated. So it is a form of mandatory vaccination. Julian, I appreciate that it isn't quite physically holding somebody down, but in in every other way, it essentially is. I mean, threatening to keep one's child from getting educated or threatening to take away a person's job. I mean, you're, you're not physically putting your hands on them and holding them down, but you are holding them and their families back from every other aspect of life. I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that, but at, at some point, you know, coercion in vaccination is justified. So if, if COVID was as lethal as Ebola and as infectious as, as Omicron, you know, and vaccines were 100% effective, they'd be made mandatory tomorrow. It's just that COVID isn't as lethal as, as, as Ebola. So, you know, at some point, vaccine passports or, or even more severe mandatory measures, even holding people down, could be justified. It just depends on the facts of the case. And I agree the COVID situation is very murky because the vaccines are not completely effective at reducing illness, not completely effective at reducing transmission. Um, the disease is not severe in people typically under the age of, of, of 50 or to 65. The, art, the strongest arguments for mandatory forms of vaccination, including vaccine passports, are for those over the age of 65 who are most likely to get ill yet that hasn't been embraced. So the COVID situation is not a highly infectious form of Ebola, but the, the principles that we're outlining, unless you're an absolute libertarian that says liberty can never be infringed, at some point you've got to accept certain forms of liberty infringement. Okay, what do you say to that? Do you think it's morally wrong of a government, of a representative democracy, to coerce people into doing things that benefit society at large? I think that throughout this pandemic, we've often been guilty about talking about the extremes from what if something were as lethal as Ebola or the SAGE scenarios that we learned over Christmas from the chair of the SAGE modeling committee are not necessarily designed, but certainly flagged if they're going to lead to more restrictions, not fewer, always talking about the worst case scenario. And it's very difficult to come up with public policy now for the worst case scenario that could exist in a, in a totally different hypothetical world. I think in general, as Julian said, the default has to be liberty. But the problem is that even in a condition in which at the moment, Omicron is under control in the UK, it's a different, difficult situation in hospitals, but we are not overwhelmed. We are learning to live with this virus. We have decided to usher in 
an apparatus that has huge sweeping implications for not just our, our lives now, but for what it can mean in the future. I mean, what if another government wants to add flu vaccinations? What if they want to add things that aren't vaccinations at all? What if it becomes some kind of social credit system? And I don't think this is simply the slippery slope argument. They weren't honest about bringing them in in the first place. Ministers spent months saying there was absolutely no consideration that this was immoral and ethical, that we didn't want to be a paper carrying country. So I don't think we even have to go to the extremes to, to talk about what's happening now. Liberty should be the default. And it's not at the moment in the UK. And there's an opportunity to roll this back because it hasn't been established for very long. I agree. I think there is there is an onus on the government to to show that these are proportionate measures. And and really, you know, I I haven't been convinced by the argument. I think the argument can be made in certain circumstances, but but I haven't been convinced, although I'm, you know, in part a supporter of vaccine passports and various forms of mandatory vaccination, I think it really has to be justified. And, you know, I think it it has moved very swiftly and it's not clear that it's proportionate. Kate, you say we need to roll it back. Our cover line is sort of even more emphatic. It says rip it up. Yes. (laughs) How would we go about doing that? The Prime Minister obviously ordered his party to vote these measures through last month. Would he, would he order his party to vote against them? Well, there's a sunset clause in the Plan B measures, and that includes vaccine passports, masks in certain places, the working from home guidance, which comes in at the end of this month. I say in the piece that we should go a step further. I mean, first of all, we, we don't know what the government's position will be. They may well ask MPs to vote on this again. But given the fact that almost 100 Tory MPs said no the first time, this is a this is a very delicate situation politically for the government. But I say in the piece, this shouldn't just be a sunset clause. It shouldn't be about phasing it out, but keeping the apparatus there that they could use at any other given time. There should be a vote to get rid of these things because at the moment we have accepted the principle. We shouldn't have a sunset clause because they're not needed right now. We should have a sunset clause because they are really the antithesis of of what you'd want in a free society. And you know what? The prime minister used to make these arguments much better than me. He was one of the most eloquent advocates for liberty and against vaccine passports. I quote him a bit in the piece. You can read it this week and maybe, maybe he can borrow from his old self and remember what it meant to to reject this apparatus that inevitably leads to a loss of liberty. Kate and Julian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My pleasure. Next up, in the arts pages this week, Sarah Crompton champions understudies, whose importance, she writes, has been elevated to new heights by the COVID pandemic, as leading actors are taken ill or are forced to isolate. She's joined by Chris Howell, who was understudy to Michael Ball in Hairspray last year and is currently the stand-in for Julian Clary at the Palladium to discuss. Chris, to start with, could you tell our listeners uh, a little about what it's like being an understudy? I mean, you're joining us down the line from the Palladium now, isn't that right? So you could, in theory, be be called up at any moment. But yeah, potentially, yes. So uh, I'm a I'm I'm a standby. So my job's kind of different from an understudy. An understudy would normally be actively involved in the production, whereas a standby is employed to come in to the theatre every day and sit in your dressing room and normally wait for something awful to happen so you can go on. Sometimes people have holidays and then you go on, but invariably it's because of a disaster. I guess I'm I'm the lifeboat. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, you've written uh, the Leeds Art Feature this week and we point out that the importance of understudies has been elevated to new heights because of the pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Well, I, I think and that in the past, uh, people have always been a bit sort of sniffy about understudies. I mean, I have sat in um, theatre auditoria where people, when an understudy is announced, have sort of booed and they, they may have stayed and cheered at the end. Um, but that there's been that sense that if you don't see the advertised cast, then somehow you're missing out. I don't think that's really ever been true. I think it's particularly not been true in big musicals where there's a very elaborate system of understudies and standbys and covers. And quite often, without knowing it, you may see within the, 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 the show as a whole quite a lot of different people who aren't the advertised cast. And I think the thing that the pandemic has done is made everybody just so grateful for being in the theatre, for the show going on, that in fact, you know, there's been no resistance to the idea that um, some shows have ended up with kind of quite large numbers of their cast substituted because of COVID but people don't care because they're there to enjoy the show and they're there to be out and to support theatre and I think that's possibly one of the the few kind of really good legacies theatrically for theatre. And Chris is this something that you've noticed as well? So in the summer I was the standby for Michael Ball in Hairspray and I, I would I would support that point that's just been made. We had COVID in our building and sadly had to close for two and a half weeks. And but obviously the, the long COVID and the repercussions of that meant that quite a few understudy or standby performers would go on. And I would agree that I don't think, in, previously, I think in the past, people have maybe felt a little resentful for paying for their tickets and not seeing their favourite performer appear. But I think re- I think... After such a, a barren time theatrically, I think people have come back to the theatre in their thousands. And I think people have come back for the experience. Yes, of course, it's disappointing when you don't see that person you paid for. But at the same time, it's, there's a clear joy and happiness that you feel from, from an audience when, when you're performing. And I think it's, people have craved that experience of communally sharing appreciation for a musical or a play or, or a ballet or whatever it is and I, and I, I, so I would definitely support that, that previous point yes. Sarah what are some of the success stories regarding understudies that you've heard about during the pandemic you know those who have channeled the trajectory of Donald Sutherland in the 1960s and gone from understudy to, to a sort of overnight star? There was a fairy tale moment, I think, in um, Frozen, where Emily Lane, straight out of drama school, stepped into the part of Anna. And she was the second cover, so she had no reason to think that she would go on. But she did go on and really was kind of acclaimed, you know, at the end, got huge applause. So, I mean, I think that's a very big stepping stone for her career. I personally haven't seen many. I've been lucky in the productions I've gone to. I haven't, or perhaps unlucky, I haven't seen many. But I think that sense of younger people getting a big break, getting a big experience has been really valuable. And I sort of have a sense that I mean, that understudy thing has always been there, but companies like the National in in its early years very much had a system where they had a a kind of roster of younger actors um, who they expected to step up into big parts. And everybody thought that was quite exciting that you would go along and, you you know, you might expect to see Laurence Olivier, but you've got Albert Finney, or you might expect to see someone else, and Robert Stevens, and you've got Anthony Hopkins. So I think there's... 
maybe that's coming back a bit because certainly in ballet, which I watch a lot, it's often really, really exciting to see the young dancer taking on the part and, and, and you kind of mark their card and know you'll watch them. And Chris, probably that happens a lot in theatre, I suspect, and I just haven't been there to see it. Mm, it yeah, it definitely does. And that, there have definitely been, in my experience, people I've performed with that have been on as understudies that have been noted by directors or I'm the associate director on this show and you know it's a small network everybody talks to each other someone goes on and does a good job and generally that's rewarded you know it means someone else might see you for an audition or someone will maybe consider you for a larger role in the show so yes that system I believe still works. And Chris I wonder about if you could talk a little about the expectation that's that's placed on some of these performers who step in at the last minute. And Sarah mentions in her article that Hugh Jackman's co-star in The Music Man had to, you know, had was told she had to do the part at midday, had her first rehearsal at 1pm and then and then was performing by the evening. I mean, is, is it not terrifying for some, some of these uh, last-minute... It's, abso- it's absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> a, a couple of years ago, actually, in this job, I was doing my associate director job but my, my job I also had that year stood by for Paul O'Grady and it was it was the Christmas before Covid and he'd been on holiday and came back and he was terribly ill and I had to go on to play sort of the leading role in this pantomime show and with an hour's notice and I think it's about I think part of being an actor is about being fearless and not getting into your own head so it's it's terribly exciting and and also terribly uh, terribly scary as well and I've I've been lucky enough in my career to stand by for quite a few celebrities. And so I think I know how to deal with any sort of groans when the announcement goes out. I mean, my dear friend Rhea Jones uh, uh, stood by for Glenn Close and Glenn Close went down. And yeah. she, she, at the beginning of her act, she plays the audience response, which is booing. And at the end of her act, she plays, they, they recorded it and they recorded the, her, her, her bow as well. So... I, obviously that was different times but the pressure is there but I think when you sign your contract you know and you get your script not, not only must you look at your role but you have to start watching and, and, and eyeballing everything that the person that you want to study for does because you never know what's going to happen you know I've been I've had to stand by understudy in rehearsals before which is terribly scary but it's just all part of the job and you know what it's like it's it's that moment of going going over a roller coaster you get to the very top it's that one moment what am I doing what am I doing and there's only one way (laughs) so you just jump in and do it so yeah it's it's frightening and thrilling at the same time what I didn't know, uh, Will, until I wrote the article for you was that there, there are people who actually specialise in being swings. So that the swing is a person who doesn't understudy or stand by on any one part, but they, they will learn up to 10. And um, it requires incredibly sort of unusual skills to do that. But yeah, there are people, and I didn't know that, there are people who just love being swings. And on Broadway, there are people who are swings across a number of shows. So they'll, they'll be driving from one show to another Gosh. Uh, Gosh. Uh, when they're called up. And, and, and it's a particular type of brain that you can hold that many parts and, and really thrive on that kind of richness, I suppose, which I, I did find really interesting. Yeah, it's hard enough to remember your own lines for, for one part, you would have thought, never mind the full scripts of several different productions <laughs> at the same time. Exactly. So we've just finished on, we've, we've illustrated your piece with a picture from All About Eve, with Eve 
as he played by Anne Baxter and Margot by Betty Davis. Do you think there's much truth to the story of an ambitious understudy plotting to usurp her heron? I mean, should actors be worried about understudies? Well, I, I suspect that, you know, an understudy's always got to be a bit ambitious. And, and, and the story that Will mentioned about Donald Sutherland was very funny because it was back in the 60s when Sutherland was completely unknown. And an actor called Ronald Fraser had um, actually forgotten he was uh, due on stage and had gone off to have a drink or two um, and came back to the theatre when he remembered and discovered that, in fact, Donald Sutherland was on stage and getting more laughs than he did. So I suppose that was Sutherland seizing his moment. But I think, you know, All About Eve is the most brilliant story, but I suspect that it's it's only semi-true. I think on the whole, understudies are there kind of trying to be a support to the actors. But I suspect, too, they're quite glad <laughs> when they get their moment in the spotlight. I mean, who wouldn't be? Chris, would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a joke, it's particularly in musical theatre, they're called Hunger Studies. <laughs> and, uh, and do you know what? It's, it's something to be applauded and something to be frightened of as well. I've, I've been in both positions, so I know what it's like. I've also been a swing and it is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And how many parts did you know any one time when you were a swing? So um, I was employed in a show called Made in Dagenham. So I was there to cut, cut, understudy Harold Wilson. But um, I always had to swing uh, six boys. But then when they were down on women and to make patterns in the show, you'd have to go on as a man in a woman's track. So you ended up knowing about 20 tracks, plus I had to understudy Harold Wilson. So my first night on was Harold Wilson. I played two men and Harold Wilson. But you do it. As Sarah says, something in your brain just clicks. It's not something <laughs> I wouldn't want to do again. It's terrifying. But I think every, every actor should do it once. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Sarah. And finally, the comedian Stuart Lee has produced a list of people he would like to put in a pedal bin for the new year. In The Spectator this week, Julie Birchall writes about her excitement to be featured on the list and why she loves to be hated. Joining us today are two others who made Stuart Lee's cut. Journalist Martha Gill and Winston Marshall, formerly of the band Mumford & Sons, but who this year will be launching a new show with The Spectator, Marshall Matters. Firstly, a question for you both. Do you have any idea why you've been consigned to Stuart Lee's pedal bin? Martha, perhaps you want to start? I have no idea. When I first heard about this, I thought it must be a case of mistaken identity. There's another Martha Gill who's a dirt biker who's extremely cool. And his career I track in much envy. Maybe she has a secret feud with Stuart Lee, making her even more cool. But I, but I had a look through my tweets and uh, from one from three years ago, I did. It was devastatingly mild. It was um, something like, is Stuart Lee funny or does he just say things people are likely to agree with? really slowly. <laughs> uh, I'm right above Putin on the list. You're right above Putin? Yeah. Wow. Um, so uh, that's quite the placement. Yeah, I, I, I mean, in a way, I'm kind of delighted. It's very important at some point in your career to have a, a feud with someone who's far more powerful and popular than you. <laughs> you see it with all kinds of people, Sadiq Khan and Donald Trump, for example, that did wonders for Sadiq Khan. All kinds of feuds. I mean, look at Piers Morgan. His whole career is built on feuds, some of whom haven't never responded to him, but yet he's managed to feud with them for years. So I'm really hoping this could be my 
my moment. <laughs> and Winston, why do you think you made the cut? Well, there's so many reasons to loathe me, and uh, <laughs> no one loathes me more than I do myself. But I, something curious about my inclusion on the list is that I get a specifically Winston Marshall. I'd love to know what specifically I'm on the list for. It's interesting company. I, uh, I'm delighted to see that I'm with John Cleese and Ricky Gervais. That's definitely on the right side of the, of the list. So, um, but I'm also with the Taliban. And, um, and I'd also love to know, you know, is this in order? Like, am I worse than the Taliban or better? Yeah, yeah. yeah so the oh, ordering it, of the list is very interesting. I it? know, I'm really interested in the internal hierarchy of it. Like, are you worth 0.3 of a Taliban? <laughs> like, how about fishermen? Is it all of them or just a few yeah. of them? Or are you better than or worse than... Putin. I mean, it's a bit or Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Julie obviously writes about this in this week's issue, and she says it's actually a badge of honour to appear on this list. Do you do you both feel that way, Winston? I guess it's kind of fun. I remember uh, reading one of Stuart Lee's books about ten years ago. I think it's called uh, "If You Wanted a Murder Comedian," and I remember enjoying it. Um, I don't know too much more about his work, but yeah, I think it's kind of. I guess should I be should I be worried? Is it a bad? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm very pleased. I think if you look at the pedestal list, it, it's not quite as imaginative as the pedal bin list. He's so, got Marcus Rashford, and I I do like Marcus Rashford. Yeah, but I'm also quite glad Owen to Jones. be. Yeah, on the on the opposite list from Owen Jones. That's, that's <laughs> well, that's fine I mean, by me. I mean, as you say, it's, perhaps it's more interesting to be on the 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 bin list. I mean, Julie in her piece, she she's she writes that. Uh, when she read of her involvement on the list, that it reminded her of the Billy Joel lyric, I'd rather laugh with the sinner than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. I mean, is that a sentiment you think you'll agree with? It's better to be a, a sinner than a saint in many ways? I think if you look at Stuart Lee's comedy, where he basically plays this overly politically correct character, which is how I interpret it. That's how he that, that is it, right? Well, yeah. Is it, a, is it a character? How, to what extent? What, what do you think this list tells us about Stuart Lee's thinking, his kind of political thinking? It's very mixed. It's pretty hard to pin him down from this list because pretty much everyone... I mean, there's such a variety on the, on the bin list. I tell you what, I've, there's a, he doesn't like Tory MPs. He doesn't like Tory MPs. Uh, he doesn't like journalists who have written I about trans rights. I think I saw some Labour rights. MPs. Uh, I'm not one of these, so that can't be my reason. He doesn't like comedians. There's quite a few comedians. Uh, he doesn't like other comedians, including quite a young comedian. He was very upset by his inclusion on the list. He was a fan of his. Oh. Um, so it can't just be people who've criticised him, can it? <laughs> I suppose Molotov made Stalin's list, didn't he, even though he was a fan? He doesn't like musicians. Look, we've got Van Morrison, Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> do, you think there's, do you think there's something a bit juvenile about making a list of people you like and don't like? I mean, it kind of does seem a bit... Like... It's very Mean Girls Burn Book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I kind of regret that as adults, it's not, it's no longer cool or at all acceptable to make lists of people you like and you don't like. It would be, it would be much more straightforward in social situations, wouldn't it? it? At parties, for example, you wouldn't have to kind of navigate the room wondering who your enemies and your friends are. <laughs> It'd be very clear down. because everyone would have published lists. I mean, is Stuart Lee engaging a little bit in in uh, toxic femininity here in in this Mean Girls attempt to? Oh, hang on. I admit that of the people who like, of the gender that likes making lists the most, 
I think it has to be men, doesn't it? Men love making lists. Men, men love making lists, that's true. And it's usually extremists who make lists, whether it's on the right <laughs> or the left. Uh, the centrists don't make lists. <laughs> I think Stuart Lee would think of himself as a centrist, though, don't you think? I think he's both a guardian boar and a centrist dad combined into one. Well, so you call, since you called him a guardian boy, you're definitely going to be on the list again. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps in another three years when, when, he, when he catches up with, with what you've said. This is the plan all along. Yes, exactly. I mean, do you think that there's a, 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 another lesson to be learned from this, perhaps, which is the, the perils of chasing popularity in terms of actually it's not fun to be on, on the pedestal list and to do so means you have to give up quite a lot of sincerity for something which... Possibly it isn't even worth it. Uh, I feel myself veering into more serious territory now. But I feel like, yes, comedians should embrace diversity of opinion, should they not? If you're making a list of people who, it seems from this, have correct opinions or opinions that you agree with, you're creating a kind of stifling atmosphere, aren't you? Which is kind of opposed the whole project of comedy in the first place, isn't it? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's hard to know how serious this list is. I'm not sure he's actually suggesting that we all go in an actual pedal bin. (laughs) Um, And just to finish off, Will and I were having this conversation before, but I'd like to ask you both. We were trying to decide who on the pedestal list um, you'd most like to have a meal with who would you who would you go for we found it quite hard it's easy for me I'm a big Man United fan so Marcus Rashford being on there I absolutely love Rashford and I think he did some great things last year including right for the spectator did he? he did yeah oh, he I wrote missed that. she wrote twice for us wasn't there also some trouble he had with the spectator <laughs> or... it's a little bit but it's all resolved all buried, is, it, is it yeah <laughs> we have buried the hatchet with Marcus Rashford we're all pals now I see here that all GPs are on the list <laughs> At the moment, it is impossible to get a GP appointment. <laughs> and I think having dinner with all of them uh, would really set me up uh, for the shortages to come. Winston and Martha, thank you very much. And Winston, as, you've got, as you're here, why don't you just tell us a bit about your new show, which you're about to launch with The Spectator? Yeah, I'm very excited to launch Marshall Matters, where I'll be uh, interviewing people in the creative industries about all the issues that uh, are coming up. And if Stuart Lee is listening, and I'm, I surely doubt he is, he'd be a most welcome guest and he can tell me why I'm on his pedal bin list. Winston and Martha, thank you very much. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you want to read the articles that inspired this podcast, you can subscribe to The Spectator today for instant online access to the full magazine and we'll also send you a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week. Thank you.